verses 1 through 7, which can be found on page 1780 of the Pew Bible. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Thanks, Libby. Morning, everyone. So uh, this is the same passage we did last week. Last week I talked about sexual immorality. If you missed that really fun time, you can go back and listen to it. This morning I'm going to focus on the section that talks about uh, obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking, and the negative stuff that comes after it. One of the things I said last week was, it seems odd to some people that when God is telling the body of Christ, that is the people who believe in Jesus, how to live together, that the two first and main things he talks about are sexual immorality and how we talk. Now, in our culture, in some ways, sexual, sexual morality doesn't seem like a big deal, so maybe sexual morality and how we talk might seem fairly even. But for a lot of people, they, those seem like really uneven. Like, how does what you say— why put that together with like what we do sexually? They'll seem— But those are the two ways groups of people together in society with one another destroy each other. Sexual immorality ripples out immediately, consistently, and everywhere. It hurts everyone, and it ruins almost every form of human attachment in one way or another. It creates rivalry. That was last week's sermon. I won't get into it now. Speech similarly— in many ways, the way a group of people destroys their relationship to each other and therefore destroys themselves is how they talk to each other. It's one of the main ways couples destroy their relationship. For example, um, in one of the studies done on people divorcing, communication or the way they talk to each other was the number one reason given, right? And of course, I always joke with couples when we counsel, and they're like, well, we just have trouble communicating with each other. And I always say, listen, if you wanted— to really, really hurt your spouse's feelings right now, would you know how to do it? Would you know what to say to really hurt their feelings? And the answer, of course, is yes. The problem is not, is not their ability to communicate. <laughs> the, the, problem is they, the problem is they communicate too well, and their heart is too wicked, and they're really good at communicating their wicked heart, and then they destroy each other with their terrible words. The, the problem in our relationships really is not mainly communication. It's mainly our hearts, and then the overflow of our hearts that come out of our mouths. One of the things that's so terrible and difficult about the human tongue 
is that it is directly connected to the human heart. That is the problem. And what is in the heart can come out so fast. Right? But one of the things Scripture tries to teach us over and over again is that your words, what you say, are, are terrifyingly important. Proverbs 15 forces this, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but the deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. 1821 says, the tongue that, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. 2123 says, he who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. Right? You could look at a lot of other verses on this. This is just a sampling. This is public, so you can go look at it later if you want. Um, in the New Testament, there are some very strident statements about the importance of our speaking. For example, in James 1, it says this, if anyone considers, considers himself religious, this is the only place in the New Testament where the word religious is used in a, with a positive connotation. Usually, if religion is referenced, it's usually like negative religiosity, but here is a positive connotation. If anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. So th think about that for a second. The Apostle James is saying that if you say that you're a believer— right? And you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue. You're kidding yourself. Think about that. One symptom. He's like, look, all I gotta do is listen to how you talk, and I'll know. That's all I gotta do. And you know, the old, the, I think the more mature you get in the faith, you realize that's absolutely true. And it's relative in some sense to age, People learn how to talk better sometimes as they get older and they realize how much damage you can cause and how much hurt you can create by what you say. Um, sometimes it's, it, it's usually very relative to growth in the faith, right? The more you grow with Jesus, the more you realize how powerful words are, hopefully, and the more he begins to grow you in that area. But everybody who is following Jesus should recognize pretty quick that how you talk matters— and whether or not you're willing to adjust and change the way you talk on the basis of who is king of you is enormous, right? And then James says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, right? A lot of people like the orphans and, and widows in their distress because that's just, they're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate for lots of things, right? But it also says to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, <laughs> which people don't want to pay as much attention to that, but that's a different sermon. Okay, let's keep going. Um, in Matthew 21, 22, Jesus says it this way. You've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and that anyone who murders will be subject to just judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So the Sanhedrin was a group of Jewish leaders that were in charge of Jewish law. Raka is like a—it's sort of an insulting thing that you could say in the Aramaic language. You fool was like a little bit more intense than that. But, but notice a couple of things. One, saying you fool to someone who is your brother, that is a, a fellow human being, is really what it means in the context there, um, is sufficient to put you in danger of the fire of hell. Okay? That's pretty serious business. Right? And, but no, and notice this, too. So like earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, um, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you 
that if you even look at a woman and, and think or engage in lustful thoughts, you've already committed adultery in, in your heart. That doesn't mean this, that if you think lustful thoughts, you should just go ahead and commit adultery. That's not what Jesus is saying, okay? Sorry, that was supposed to be funny, but it's also true, okay? What, what he's saying is, what he's, what he's saying is he's saying they, those come out of the same fountain. The one will lead to the other, right? Lust and adultery are the fruit of the same vine. And if you think through what adultery is, lust is a very similar thing. It's just a lust. It's just an adultery that you can keep private, but there is nothing private from God, right? But notice the command here that this is derived from. Jesus derives this from the murder commandment. <laughs> Do you see this? He takes the way we talk, especially when we say things that are that are damaging. And he says, you know how you should know this is bad? <laughs> because this is derived from anger, and anger is derived from murder. And so because murder is wrong, speaking to people this way is wrong. And that is why the penalty for it can be so high, right? And you're like, well, that doesn't make much sense. But James kind of lays this out a little bit in the book of James later in the Bible. He says this, he says, the tongue, with it our tongues, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, notice this next, this next line, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praising and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. You see what he's saying? He's saying, this is why in chapter 1 he could say, all I needed to know or to hear is how you talk to know if you're a believer. He said, because if you have a tree that normally produces figs, it's not going to produce olives, right? The, the meaning and the heart of what that tree is is going to naturally produce a certain kind of fruit, and it's not going to produce a different kind of fruit. And there are certain fruits and certain ends that are incompatible with each other. So if you have a spring where water comes out, if, it, if wa salt water comes out, it's worthless. If fresh water comes out, it's the most valuable thing in the world. Salt, salt water will literally, it will kill you if you drink enough of it, right? Fresh water is what all life is derived from. And he's like, he's like you, don't, you don't get a half salt spring. It's one or the other. Some things truly are either ors. And this is an either or. And he says, this is why it's an either or. You can't come into worship and sing and praise God, who is our Lord and Master, and then turn to a human being and curse them. Because every human being you turn to curse is made in God's image. So, when you curse a human being—and curse is meant in the broad sense here. It's not literally like making hexes or something. It means like you speak derisively and destructively to another human being. That's what he means by curse, right? When you do that to a human being, the object of your speech is a divine image bearer. That, that person is made in the image of God. And, it, and you can't speak towards God one way and then to his image bearers another way and have any integrity. It splits your character in half. It makes you both things. And one of the two things is false. The question is, which is false? Which is the true you and which is the false you? Is the true you the one that praises God or the one that curses men? And the answer is the second. If you curse men, if you will attack people made in God's image, that is the true you. And so that's why he can say, you guys— you can't do this. Now, the point of James is not to say, look, if you've spoken badly to somebody, you're not a Christian. The point 
that James is trying to make is if that is the way you behave, you cannot continue to behave that way. In Christ, as you walk in the way of love and are an imitator of God and your life is this fragrant offering, like verses 1 and 2 say, increasingly, it will be more true of you that you will adore God and see value in everyone made in his image, and increasingly you will cease to behave this way because of the difference, the different way you're beginning to see the world that God owns and that he's created and that he's redeeming. Does that make sense? Now, so what do we do, right? If our words are terrifyingly important, then what do we do, right? Is, so should we, maybe we should, maybe just we should, every 100% of what we say should be positive. Have you ever met people who believe this? There are a lot of people who say they believe this. Well, listen, just be, you should always be positive. You should be positive, 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 right? Um, one of the, uh, yeah, I, obviously you know this is not a philosophy that I am prone to believing, but there are a lot of folks who think like this is the way you should move through the world. Now, the, the problem with this is, is there's two problems. One is Jesus never talked this way, and neither is the, does the gospel speak this way, nor does the Bible speak this way. The second is, is that it never actually works. I, I don't know if you, maybe you are one of the people who believe that you should just be 100% positive, or, or most of us have at least known people. And what I have found in the practice of my life is that it never works. It's, an, it's, it's actually, for all its positivity, it ends up being a very self-destructive way of moving through the world. Because one of two things is happening. One, sometimes it's just cynical. The person isn't positive. They don't really want to think positive. They just know that you, you win friends and influence people better if you're positive all the time. And there's a certain amount of truth to that. And that doesn't necessarily have to be terribly cynical, right? You could just be like, I'm just going to be nice to everybody. Talk nice and tell everybody they're fantastic, and then people will like me and move me forward. And that's true. That's also called sycophancy. It was considered a terrible sin for most of human history um, because you're really not being the, an authentic you. You know what I mean? You're just telling people what they want to hear. Right? Um, but in, in addition to that, it's very unstable psychologically, and in terms of the human soul. It's very unstable for somebody to try to just be 100% positive all the time. Because here's what—here's the problem. You're not 100% positive. You don't feel 100% positive. You don't think 100% positive. And you know things aren't 100% positive, okay? So one of two things happens. Either one, you're full of all these problems that you don't ever talk about. And, and what happens, it's kind of like when people try—you know when people try to diet and they try to just not eat anything, right? And then they get a hold of a box of cookies— and they just eat the whole thing, right? I had a number of people in my life who like wanted to be this, like at least they wanted to like make everybody feel like they were just positive all the time, just super positive people. But then when they would start gossiping about somebody, oh my goodness, they would rip a new one, man. Or when they would like yell at their kid at home, they, there was like no boundaries. Or like they'd finally get in that argument with their husband and it would just like blow up to the high heavens or wife, you know, whatever. Not like the examples are mostly women. Right? I, I remember I had an intern one time who was doing this gig. Every tweet was super positive. Everything on Facebook was positive. Everything he said was super positive. Super positive. You're going to be awesome. You're going to make a million dollars. You're going to be the greatest person ever lived. You're going to be the godly, right? And then like, he, he comes into my office one day and he's like in tears and he's like falling up. He's like, I just feel like you hate me and it's angry. We're doing that. And it was really, really pain. I was like, you've been in a lot of pain for a while. He's like, I know. And like, I was like, why didn't you tell me? And he's like, well, I didn't want to be negative. You know, like it was, it, it was, and it's, it was real. Like he, re, I mean, this is, it was very sincere. You know what I mean? A lot of the things that really hurt us are very sincere. 
you know, but like, but, or, so there's, you can be self-tortured and you can blow things up. Or sometimes people are like, well, I'm going to be positive, but here's the problem. You have responsibilities in your life to be negative sometimes. And if you decide being good, being a good person, is just always being positive, you will not make the hard call to say the hard thing lovingly when it's necessary, which is a horrible thing. Right? And this is one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't speak that way. Right? You look at Jesus talking, and Jesus is, I mean, like, he's like, how do you— and it's always, it's always relative to what he's dealing with, okay? So sometimes, I know some people, I was prone to this when I was younger, right? You can read like Matthew 23 where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's like, you guys are a brood of vipers. You're like whitewashed graves. How do you escape, expect to escape the damnation of hell, and, right? Or like Ezekiel 16 is like extreme. It's like, it seems like extremely vulgar. And it's God talking. It's very sarcastic. And there are places in the Bible where God is sarcastically making fun of people who are getting killed and dragged off to captivity. Okay? And you may be like, what? That's very—that's that's very mean, right? But listen, God's intensity in his negative speech— Listen, I want you to listen. This is very, very important. Okay? This is very important. Because there's some people who think, well, God is maximally negative in some places in Scripture. So I can be too, and I think it's good. Well, just hold on for a second, okay? When he was sarcastically humiliating towards people who were being dragged off to, ca to captivity, he had been trying something else for 500 years, okay? 500 years. You understand? Like when, when Jesus or when the voice of God in the scriptures is, is sarcastic or very acidically negative, it is literally the very last thing possible. Do you understand? There are some people who are so hardened, so angry, so like they're, they're, they've so set their faces like flint, right? They're like steel against the truth. There are some folks that are in a position where you've pushed and you've probed and you've looked for places where they were soft of heart and there isn't anything. And there's a point where the only thing that will affect them is to be mocked and humiliated. And there are very specific situations in which that's actually loving because God does it. But it's, it's very, like, it's not prostitutes. He doesn't talk to prostitutes that way. He doesn't talk to tax collectors that way. Most of the people who are terrible sinners, he doesn't talk to that way. He mostly talks that way to hardened religious people, right? And very hypocritical religious people, like in the Old Testament. They were like, oh yeah, I'm doing great. God thinks I'm fantastic. He's like, no, that's not true. That's usually when he talks that way. And that's it. People who've wrecked their own lives, people who have made their bed and now they have to lie in it and it's really terrible— people who are li literally doing terrible sins right now. He doesn't really talk to them that way. So just be very careful about that. But notice just right in this passage, that in the second half of this passage, the Apostle Paul speaks very negatively. He starts very positively. He says, hey, you guys be imitators of God as God's dearly loved children, right? That's really great. But then at the end of the passage, he says this, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For you can be sure of this. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things the wrath of God comes on those—literally, that is the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. The reason why I tell you it's—it literally sons of disobedience is because at the beginning of the chapter, it says God's dearly loved children, and then there are the sons of disobedience. So both are are father-child metaphors. Does that make sense? But notice what he's he's saying here. He's saying, listen. He's saying, okay, listen. For of this you can be sure. So literally, it's knowing this, no. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, that phrase is only used once in the whole Bible here. And what he's saying is you can be 100% absolutely, completely certain of what I'm about to tell you, right? No immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. There's no inheritance for such a person. Why? Because that person isn't a believer. That person is instead an idolater. They're worshiping another god. It's not that they're too sinful. There's nobody that's too sinful. It's not an issue of sinfulness versus forgiveness. It's an issue of devotion. Are you worshiping God or an idol? That's always the question for God. Do you understand? It's always the question for God. The, the question for God is never how bad you are, right? The answer is real bad. Or how much forgiveness there is. The answer is unlimited forgiveness. The issue is always a question of devotion. Who do you belong to? Whose are you? Do you worship God or do you worship an idol? Right? And so he says, if you are persistently and willfully, without repentance, sexually immoral, giving yourself to all forms of impurity, and full of a kind of covetous greediness in your life, you're always grasping and taking more than giving and producing and being full of thankfulness. These are indications that you are not a follower of God no matter what you say. Right? Because he's talking to Christians, remember. He's not talking to irreligious people right now. He's talking to people who claim to be believers. And he's saying, listen, if you claim to be a believer, but your life is full of unrepentant sexual immorality and embrace of any kind of, of impurity that you know is an impurity, and full of a kind of greediness rather than a productivity and a thankfulness, don't kid yourself. You're not worshiping the God who produces productivity and generosity and thankfulness. You're worshiping something else which produces wantonness, desire, and an inflamedness of the human passions rather than an ordering of them. And that's who you worship. Don't kid yourself, right? And then he says, Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words, for because of such things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Now why does he say all this, right? And he, he tells us why he says all this. He tells us he's saying this because he doesn't want you to be partners with them. What does that, what does that mean, right? Christ, Christians have always been in the minority. Always. There's never been a time in any culture, in any place, where Christians who believed the real gospel, according to the real scriptures, holistically, in terms of both faith in God and growing in godliness— such that we became obedient to everything Christ has taught us. That group of people has never been in the majority. There has never been a Christendom in which the majority of people were actually that kind of believer. Does that make sense? Do you understand? And so therefore, Christians have always been coached by the Lord to be willing and ready to stand as a minority people, as a—and and usually a small minority of the people, right? Jesus said this. He said, listen, he said, listen, the path of destruction is really broad— and the path to life is really narrow. It's not that Jesus wants to make it narrow. It's just a lot of people go down the path to destruction. They choose that. And the people who say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to follow what God has made me for and follow the Christ who has died to save me is, is going to be a smaller minority. 
And therefore, every Christian has to be prepared personally, in terms of discipline, in terms of our psychology, in terms of us as a community, to not just live, but thrive as a small minority of a wider culture. And that wider culture is going to be what the Bible calls worldly, right? They're not going to be con that concerned with sexual immorality and impurity and greediness and so on. And so what's going to naturally—and so here's one of the problems with that. Whenever you exist— and you are a true moral pricking of the conscience of those you live among, what naturally happens is you will be both warmly invited and directly threatened about continuing in the way that you're going. Do you understand? Because nobody wants to live into the presence of people who make them feel really uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Like, imagine for a minute—okay, let's imagine for a minute that, like, there was a section over here in church that had, like, 14 Amish people— Every Sunday, okay? So, like, Amish people came every single Sunday. And every Sunday, like, they're talking with people, and they're just talking about how bad consumerism is. You know, just like, we watch TV shows that are basically moral treason, and we, like, we buy everything under the sun. We have no sense of restraint. We limit our fertility because we just want to buy more cars with whatever. Like, they, and they keep talking like that, that, like, consumerism is a bad thing, right? Can you imagine how annoyed we'd get? Right? Pretty— pretty freaking annoyed because, we, yeah, we're trying to grow as Christians. Like, we are. We're, like, we're, we're, but listen, we're pretty consumeristic, right? We live in the richest country in the history of the world. We're like a hundred times more wealthy than people three generations ago. Like, we, we swim in consumerism. We don't even know it. You know what I mean? Like, even when you, like, give generously and, like, try to live simply— like, have you ever read, like, a blog in, like, Living Simply? They're like, use this, like, special $400, like, one-cup coffee maker that's really simple. You know? Like, even, like, the simplicity—it's still, like, super—you know what I mean? It's still kind of high-end. You know, they're not—you're not carving stuff out of wood, you know? And so, even people—the car carving—let's look, big wooden spoons. They cost $74 each. You know what I mean? That's like, nothing is really rustic. You know? And so, like— and so there they are. You know, every time you walk by that bearded man, you have to realize that, like, you feel silently judged. He probably isn't even judging you, but you feel silently judged, right? Because moral pricking minorities are infuriating. Because they tell you—listen, they tell you you're not safe in the mob. The natural human psychology is as long as everybody else is doing what I'm doing, no one can hold me accountable for it. That's a normal human idea. And because human beings have throats that are open graves, Romans 3 says, we feel like as long as we're among friends, so to speak, God could never judge us. No one could ever judge us. No judgment could ever be put against us because we're safe in the group. And the minute that minority is there, they're, in, they're a problem, right? And so Christians are always that minority. It's so annoying to people that like Christians are like, yeah, you can't have sex till you're married. They're like, What? <laughs> Or like, I don't care how people talk to you. You still treat them like Jesus would treat them. And he said about the people who nailed him to wood that, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He said, love your enemies. I don't care how mean your sister is to you. Or I don't care how mean your professor was to you or your boss is to you or your coworker is to you. That's how a Christian— That's how everybody should behave. You can't curse any human being. They're made in God's image. Right? That annoys the heck out of people, right? And so what's naturally going to happen is this. A culture of worldliness is always going to look to the Christian and say, be like us. We want you. You're such a great person. You could be free of all that stupid, backward, primitive, 
religious stuff. You could be like us. You could enjoy life like us. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. <laughs> like, like, we will destroy you. That's always the bargain. Like, if, if you're younger and you don't realize that yet, I just want you to be very, be very clear about this, okay? That's always the bargain. The world is always going to tell you, sometimes subtly, sometimes very directly, I'll embrace you with open arms as a brother or sister if you'll be like me. If you'll be like us and not morally prick us, I'll embrace you completely. And if you don't, we will slowly kill you. And so, if you know that that's a normal human phenomenon, what happens is human beings just slowly give into it. Over time, we just, we make little, little, we acquiesce, we don't say stuff that's going to make those people angry. We start walking on eggshells around people because we don't want to, we don't want to increase that phenomenon because then they'll, they'll come at us more aggressively. And so the Apostle Paul comes along and he, he's like, okay, you guys, it's time to sober up. And he tells us something that's as terrifying as what they are slowly and passively doing to us. You see what he's doing? As you're slowly trying to be like, you're kind of being bullied into worldliness like at school or at work or just in the culture. Paul comes along and says, listen, you guys listen to me. You can be 100% sure of this. Do you understand? 100% sure. There is no heavenly inheritance for someone who says that they're a believer and does no business with sexual immorality, the impurities normal to human life and worldliness, and that doesn't face the covetousness and greediness in the human heart. There is no inheritance for such a person. Such a person, I don't care if they tell you, I don't care if you say you worship Jesus, you're an idolater. You worship money. You worship your stomach. You worship the approval of the mob. That's who you are. Don't kid yourself. It's time to sober up. They've been giving you Moscow mules. Here's a cup of coffee. It's time to clarify your thinking. And because what they're saying is so intimidating, I need to say something that's real sobering. It is because of that kind of behavior. It's because of that kind of idolatry. It's because of that kind of rejection of God. The wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. So who is your father? Is your father the Lord of whom you will be an imitator? Or is your father disobedience? Who are you? Right? That's, you need that when people are bullying you. When people are beating up on you. When you're down by 21 at halftime. That coach better get up and say something. He better rip the paint off of your helmet to get you ready for the second half. And you see, sometimes negative speech is incredibly necessary. Right? And so part of the problem is, is like, we got to figure out what the heck we're doing, right? And so sometimes people are like, well, then maybe the answer is to just speak the truth. Or like people like to say, speak your truth, right? And on one level, speak the truth is a lot, that's a lot better. Even speak your truth is better. Because like, you know me, I'm probably like more for speak the truth than speak your truth. Because, but even speak your truth is better because if your, in that case, really means your conscience, right? If you're not being like, vapid and speaking what Twitter says, but you like really have a moral center and you're really saying what you think is true. And you know it might not be the truth and maybe you need to be corrected more towards the truth, but like you're, you're true to your conscience. The Bible supports that really strongly. It's one of the reasons why it says anything that's not from faith is sin. 
right? Or it speaks specifically about conscience because it's actually better to do something you don't know is sin, but that you believe is right. God is more forgiving about that than doing a little sin. Paul says, in, insinuates in 1 Timothy that God forgave him for murdering somebody because he absolutely believed he was doing the right thing. And because he wasn't sinning against his humanity in the image of God by breaking with his conscience, and he was deceived, what God did was forgave him and corrected him so that his conscience would be set towards what was right so that he could repent and believe and change. Because God will always move towards the conscientious no matter what, right? So better to be and if that, if you want to say that by as speak your truth, that's actually a pretty good saying. It's a pretty Christian one, if defined that way, right? But when you give a saying like speak the truth or speak your truth to people who are pretty self-indulgent, pretty self-focused, and pretty dismissive of others, it, it devolves into something terrible really fast. It's just, it's a license to tell other people off. You know what I mean? Like, just turn on, turn on the news, or turn on the Twitter sphere, or look, you know, open Facebook, or like, listen to people yelling at each other. Like, it's just, it just becomes another excuse. Every bit of good advice, when, when put together with selfishness and idolatry, just becomes another way of being wicked, right? And so, in the Bible, the standard is not just the truth. In the Bible, the standard is the, is that the content should be true and the manner should be true. The way we speak and act must speak a true content and it should also be in a truthful or good manner. And those have to go together. And in the Bible, the, the two words that usually go together is grace and truth. And when speech or, be, or action is both truthful and gracious— it becomes faithful. It is in right relationship to the truth. You, you might notice in this passage that the word proper was used. This is proper for the saints. That is, it's fitting, right? Something that fits reality, something that's faithful. So one way to think about Christian speech would be like this. That it, the issue is not, is the speech positive or negative? The issue is, is the speech faithful or unfaithful? Right? And you could have faithful speech that's increasingly sacrificial and therefore increasingly loving. Or you could have unfaithful speech that's increasingly destructive or against the will of God or the image of God in people that's increasingly hateful. Does that make sense? And hatred in the scriptures takes both the definition of intense dislike, but also committing yourself to the true evil of another person. Right? Love in the Bible is both an affection of the heart towards another who should be loved, and love is also committing yourself to the true good of another. It's both of those things, right? And the two together become a virtue. The vice of hatred is both intense dislike and committing yourself to the true evil of another person, which makes it a true vice together, right? And so— so therefore, biblically, speech would be defined something like this. Right? So, you could have negative faithful speech. And you could have negative unfaithful speech. And you could have positive unfaithful speech. And you could have positive faithful speech. Does that make sense? 
And so a believer growing in godliness is going to be increasingly up here. Both sides, both negative and positive. Right? But it's going to be above this line, the line of faithfulness. And increasingly, they will add layers up towards love because it will be increasingly sacrificial the way they'll speak. Does that make sense? And so a Christian will speak positively in encouragement, affirmation, and worship, praise, thanksgiving. I included silence and noise here for reasons I won't get into right now. Wisdom, even just telling people the truth or teaching. And then candor, rebuke, and correction are all good. And even like moral pleading. There's all kinds of places in the Bible where God is morally pleading with people. It's very negative, but he's pleading with them to turn around. It's very negative speech, but it's incredibly loving. And here, faithful threat. What we found in this passage. A faithful threat is very negative, faithful, and very loving. Does that make sense? And part of being a Christian is discerning when you're giving a faithful threat and when you're condemning someone. It's fundamental to Christian growth. Because some of us think that we're giving a faithful threat to our kids when they—we're really condemning them. That's all they take away from it. Now, part of that might be their immaturity too. But part of growing in love is growing in our capacity to do things well so that people are receiving what we're really trying to send. Does that make sense? You can get better at this. I think this is a much better paradigm than just speak your truth, tell the truth, or be positive. I think the Bible is more nuanced. It's more complete. It's more holistic. And it looks more like this. And as we follow Jesus, we're pushing more of this out and bringing more of this in. Does that make sense? So that in the end, there should be none of these three things among us. Because they're down here. But there should be none of these other things either. <laughs> Does that make sense? All right. Now you might be like, Nick, that was a very complicated slide. Can you please simplify this for us? And the answer is sure. You can think of all Christian speech as having two goals. Two goals. One is, the, the, the word in the Bible is called edification, which comes from the word edifice, which is a building, and edifice is a building. So edification is to build up a building, Right? And so if you can imagine other people as buildings God is making, he's building them up into something beautiful. And when you're building something, um, you, so you ask yourself the question, is what I'm going to say going to contribute to the building up of this person to what God is making them into? Now that doesn't mean it would only be positive. Well, Nick, you just said you'd be positive negative, but if we're only building up, then you'd only be adding well, yeah, until you get a bad carpenter and then a whole room needs to get torn out to get be made right again. Does that make sense? So, so whenever, whenever a big building gets built, there's always tear-outs or there's always things that you've got to move out of the way or maybe another building you've got to tear down entirely before you can build. But see, when you tear down, you are you're tearing down only enough so that you can continue to build positively and the building you build will have proper structural integrity. Right? So if somebody has built a first floor of worldliness— and they're like, I'm a Christian now. Let's build on top of this. Well, the problem is if you build six stories of godliness on top of a ground floor of worldliness, what's going to happen to that person's faith? It might take a little time, but the whole building is going to come down because it doesn't have basic structural integrity in it. Does that make sense? So sometimes you have to tear down and like really work through a lot of things in somebody as they're coming to, to, to Jesus. And Jesus has to do that to you. And the reason he's doing that to you isn't because he's angry with you or because he wants to hurt you or ruin all the things you believe. It's not that. It's that he wants your faith to have structural integrity. So the more stories he puts on, the more stories you can bear. And the more beautiful the building can become, right? The second is fruitfulness, right? So think about—this is in Matthew—not Matthew. It's in John 15, right? 
It says, listen, Jesus says, listen, you're kind of like this if you're a believer. There's the big grapevine, which is the Father, right? And you're a branch. And the idea here is that you would be connected to the branch, and the, the living sap of the branch would flow into you and nourish you and make you alive. And your job is just to remain connected to that vine, to that branch. Branch and vine have to stay connected. That's your job. It's your job to just stay connected, to believe, to exert faith, right? And what will happen is God's nourishment through the Holy Spirit is going to come into your life, and it's going to produce something. And then he says this. He says, And then my Father also prunes every branch. He cuts off all the dead stuff, and he cuts things way back. And listen, if you know anything about grapes, there's a lot of—when most people prune trees, they do it all wrong. You're not supposed to cut off very much. You don't cut them back. You cut off— some of the things sticking out. So it can, otherwise it like puts up a thousand little things and it's horrible. You don't cut trees back very much. One of the only things you cut back a lot is grapevines. Grapevines you cut back a lot every year because you want a lot of new growth and a lot of fruitful growth. And so, so cutting them back a lot very painfully for the plant produces the most fruit. Do you understand? One of the reasons I think Jesus uses grapevines, because there's a lot of things you prune in the ancient world. He could have said olive trees— but everybody knows the worst, most horrific, most painful pruning happens to grapevines. It says that he cuts all that stuff away and he throws it in the fire, burns it to ashes, and the result is, is that branch, which is you and me, becomes so much more fruitful because of what was pruned off of it, but only because of the positive relationship to the vine and the good things flowing from remaining in God. Does that make sense? So you see the positive and the negative, and the goal is fruitfulness. So one of the things you can say is, I don't know, Nick, I don't know that whole graph. I'll copy it down, and I'll look at it later. But you can start with, is what's going to come out of your mouth edifying? And is it to help the other person become more fruitful? If it's not, just, you just get to hold that in. <laughs> you just, you don't say it. Or you restructure it. There's a lot of stuff that you and I want to say that's legitimate in its basic idea, but it's structured all wrong because it's tied up with all of our anger and all this other stuff that's coming out of us. There's a lot of thoughts that you really should share with people in your life that you'll actually have to reformulate how you're going to say it four or five times before it's ready to come out. But that's part of growing in godliness. Refusing to do damage to other image bearers, right, is big. Okay, so— We've only got a few minutes left. These are verses on edification. Um, so let's go through a few applications, okay? I'm going to do these kind of quick because I have like six minutes and ten of them. This is going to work out great though, okay? Here we go. For, one is just take out your card. Remember, you don't—you won't remember and you won't change if you don't meditate on something longer. You've got to sit down with the thing and think about it and think about the kind of person you are and who you are and what is, who does God want to make you and where should you go from here and what— how do you talk? And this takes a lot of very difficult reflection because we tend to really dismiss our verbal sins. And so this is a great opportunity for you to take this card and ask other people that question about you. Ask your small group, people in your small group that question about you. Ask people in your family that question about you. And like use it to figure out how you can change the way you talk at people. Does that make sense? And this is an area where God is going to do really great things in your life. If you will—well, this is the first application. The, the first application is this. Just change your mind about how you think about your speaking. Believe what God believes about it, that what you say and how you use your tongue is terrifyingly important. 
and that you don't think that. You haven't thought that. Not really. Not on the level that he does. And the first step is to realize that life and death are in your mouth. That your heart, what's good oil in your heart comes right out of your mouth. That what you say to people can cause them to quit or can cause them to have courage. That literally, in many ways, the power of God is given to you in your power of speech. Remember, almost all the, all the, the myths of the ancient world, the world was kind of there and like the gods were manipulating them. Only in the Christian tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition, does God speak the world into existence. It's the Son of God called the Logos, or the logic, who is then the Word of God. The speaking of God spoken into existence. Our God is a word-centered God. He's always been a word-centered God, and he made you with a capacity for speech that none of his other creatures have that has the power of life or death. It has divine power in it. You have to change your mind about how important this is. Think about how hurt people in your life have been by sexual immorality. Think about sexual abuse and brokenness and rape and abandonment. And think about how terrible that is. And then think that God puts this speech right next to it. And think about the enjoyment of faithful, lifelong, companion love with true intimacy and interpersonal enjoyment and devotion. And what you believe in your heart, romance could be like in your spiritual fairy tale. And God puts good speech right along with that. Okay, I gotta keep moving. Sorry. Second is, choose to make speaking well a lifelong pursuit in imitating God, in walking in the way of love, and in being a fragrant offering. Decide that you are going to be the kind of person who for the rest of your life is seeking to every day speak a little better, a little more like Jesus, a little less like hell, a little more above the faithfulness line, and a little less below it. One way to start practicing this is to go back and apologize for anything you've said to anyone that would make them feel loved if you apologize to them. I would say anything you know that was wrong, but that makes people really legalistic in their minds and they get all anxious. I wouldn't use that. I would say this. What have you said that you know if you went back to that person and apologized to them, they would feel loved or they would feel resolution because you were willing to admit you shouldn't have talked that way? It helps them. It's right. It also—listen, one of the best ways to deal with bad speech is to appropriately humiliate yourself in the repentance of it afterwards. If you tell little white lies, go back and tell the person you told that white lie to that you were lying. And that you said it for this reason. You wanted to seem more intelligent than you were. You wanted them to like you more. And like—listen, and that sense of humility will sober you up the next time you try to tell—you want to tell a lie. Because why do you tell a lie in the first place? Because of your primal desires to be accepted, which puts you in a little bit of an altered state of consciousness. You need something that'll sober you up. And the humiliation of knowing you're going to go apologize if you lie to that person again is the sobriety that you need to do the right thing in the moment. That's one of the reasons why repentance is so fundamentally important to growing in godliness. Without good repenting, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done this. I'm going to do everything I can in Christ never to do again. And to say it verbally— to put away its death and to speak life into the future about that thing is one of the necessary steps to not doing it or doing it less often in the future. That's why faith in the Bible always comes with repentance. I gotta keep going, sorry. For three, practice affirmation more and more. Don't forget that people are quitters. 
They're filled with fears. They're racked with a sense of inferiority. They're all faking it, that they're doing great. And people have a very hard time really getting their heart around the fact that they're loved by God himself. And so you live among quitters and hurt people who feel inferior. Now, some people realize that, and they destroy everybody around them and knock them down so that they can be strong. Because they realize that's true. And other people realize that the calling that they have received is to speak life and affirmation into other people's lives. It should be true. But if you look for things to affirm people about, you will start to find them. Just like if you look for things to complain about, you will find them. Um, the book Practicing Affirmation by Sam Storms has been very helpful for me in this. Four, recognize your temperament and balance it as needed. Especially in this church because we tend to draw more analytic kind of people because of how I preach. Um, we tend to get people who really know how other people could improve. Um, and you, listen, your temperament is real. You shouldn't pretend you're not your temperament. But your temperament is not a morality. Do you understand? Your temperament isn't a spirituality. You still have certain spiritual and moral duties, and you must do them. And one of them is, is that you should affirm other people. So like, if you know how other people can be corrected, and like that's always with you, you need to actually exert energy to seek to affirm other people, and do it consistently, and do it fully and wholeheartedly, and it'll make you a much better person, and it will sanctify your temperament. It won't change your temperament, but it will sanctify it. It will make your temperament more godly, right? And then, go ahead and help people improve. Once you have affirmed them enough that they're willing to listen to you, right? And if it's vice versa, if you tend to like blow a lot of smoke at people, you say lots of positive things. Maybe you even mean all those positive things. Are you the kind of person who avoids telling the harder truths that the other person really needs for the structural integrity of their edification? Or so they can be pruned back to good and great fruitfulness? If you're that person, you need to grow in courage. But for both, you need to grow in courage. Because why don't we affirm people more? Why don't we worship why don't we affirm God more by worshiping more fully? Right? And my, my answer is, that is, it's because of your psychological inhibitions. You don't want to. Something is holding you back. Something inside that you can't completely explain is holding you back. And people don't normally overcome those inhibitions. And courage is required to overcome them. Both to overcome what's holding you back and sometimes to bridle in what's pushing out. And self-control is not just keeping yourself from doing what's bad. It's also sometimes pushing through what's holding you back from doing what's good. Right, I'm going to go a little faster. Decide you're always going to tell the truth graciously. Aim for faithful speech, not just true speech. True isn't good enough. Does that make sense? I mean that literally. You can say true things that are evil. True isn't good enough. Six, regard speech and silence as an sacrifice to be fragrant. If you think of your speech as a fragrant offering to God, it's a sacrifice. It should be a sacrifice. You shouldn't be doing whatever you want. You should be doing what's for the good of other people. And you're aiming for something that's beautiful, not just not wrong. If you try to learn to speak beautifully, you will speak better. Right? Seven is, you should count your self-talk as speech. Everything that I've said about speech— applies to the talk going on inside of you. Which means don't aim just for positivity. Aim for faithful speech. Does that make sense? Speak to yourself true things. And don't allow yourself to speak to yourself either, either positive or negative unfaithful things. 
And grow in speaking well to yourself inside. You could say something similar about prayer, too. Some people would say, Nick, we live in a time where people don't like Christians and stuff. And people need to fight. And they need to—sometimes they need to say stuff that may not be great to say. And like, may, you know, if we don't fight, then other people are going to beat us up and we're not going to get anywhere. Listen, the Bible does, never says you can't fight, word-wise. That you can't advocate for things and call things what they are and all of that. It never says that. It says you can't engage in the kind of destructive game-playing that is off-argument that is trying to destroy people. No obscenity, no foolish talk, and no coarse talking. There's nothing in there about an argument that's, that's your fight. Like you, like, you can go out there, and people can call you names, and you can say, listen, I believe that this is wrong, and you can make the most powerful argument for it. And you can say that it's an abomination, and you can say that it's a horrible thing, and that generations will judge us. And you can, you can make a very strong argument for something without doing any false speech. So don't, don't believe the cop-out that— you know, like, that you have to speak really coarsely in order to speak really definitively and directly and to really advocate for what should be advocated for in the social sphere. You just have to have a heck of a lot more self-control than the people who just say whatever they want. But that's what we expect from our soldiers. American soldiers all over the world are expected to, like, fight with a certain kind of dignity— no matter what the opponents do. And they're like, well, the opponents do all kinds of terrible things. Well, that's why we have—our soldiers have to be that much better than them. They have to be better prepared, better equipped, better disciplined, better trained, so that they can go into that fight and they can, they can commit themselves and acquit themselves like they must in that fight, no matter what the opponents do. Same thing for us when we speak out in the culture. That could be another sermon. Overcome unfaithful speech by becoming a student of faithful speech. Don't just try to not say bad things. Become a student of what is good to say, and the more you make, you're a student of what's good to say, the better your speech will become, especially in the realm of vulgarity. Like when people say a lot of vulgarity—like, uh, it's like, I remember when I was in seminary, I would say a lot of things. I didn't say like bad vulgar words, but like the semi-bad vulgar words. Like the stuff that like, you're like, Nick, I wish you wouldn't say that because then my five-year-old is like, Mommy, I thought I wasn't supposed to say that. Those words, right? I said those words a lot more. And I had a professor who was like, Nick, why don't you just learn to say what you mean? Instead of trying to not say those words, why don't you just learn to be more articulate and say exactly what you mean? And it'll serve you in your whole life. And so I had to develop more of a vocabulary, and I had to speak about things more succinctly and directly and more focused and, and, and like with more deliberate language. And as I did that, I didn't need those words. People understood me better. I was miscommunicating less, and I was getting smarter. And you see, godliness is useful in all circumstances. If you choose to speak well, you won't just cuss less, or you won't just curse people less, or you won't just be vulgar less. You will learn to speak well, and you'll be misunderstood less, and you'll actually—and as you learn to know and be known better in more clearer speech, in a wider vocabulary, in more distinct speech, you'll actually get smarter because you'll be using your mind to make clear thoughts and to say clear things. Most of our sarcasm would count as foolish talk or unwholesome talk, according to Ephesians. Our society is full of sarcasm. Um, most of it would not be good, according to the scriptures. And one of the things that every believer in modern America should do is to go through their use of sarcasm and begin to sort out what counts as godliness and not. So, for example, making fun of our addiction to professional sports with sarcasm is probably much better than sarcastically insinuating that everybody commits adultery or that it's not that big a deal. 
There are some sarcasms that make important things look stupid or worthless. Things that God cares about. That's the worst kind of sarcasm. There are little sarcasms that sort of like make fun of your sins and how you don't really think they're sins, but they really are. Or, or obsessions of yours that are kind of way out of proportion, right? Like I could make fun of how much we worship the Packers sarcastically. And that would be kind of goading us into recognizing that we might be a little too interested in certain things and not as interested in certain more important things. That would might be a edifying sarcasm. But like if you're going to use sarcasm, you should think about how you're using it. Otherwise, it's just passive-aggressive, ungodly speech. Right? And then lastly, the first step is always repentance and faith in Jesus. We're going to use communion as an act of this this morning. But one of the things to think about is when Jesus said, listen, if you say you fooled this when you're in danger in the fires of hell, do you know what he said? What he said right after that was this. Hey, listen, if you come to God and you want to worship him and you realize that you've said something to someone that's probably made it so they hate your guns because <laughs> you just kind of deserve it, here's what you do. You don't, you don't say, oh, I'm going to hell and jump off a bridge. Okay, that's not what you do. It's repentance and faith. It's always repentance and faith. It's never how bad are you. It's always who do you worship, an idol or the true God. He said, leave your worship— Go find the person, apologize, repent, ask them to forgive you, restore the relationship, and then come back to me and offer your sacrifice, and I'll receive it warmly. See, what God wants from us is not to be like, I'm such—I speak—hopefully you're very convicted after this sermon. I hope that everybody in here is like, I gotta get a hold of this speech thing. God help me. This is—this is gonna be really hard. That's a really good feeling. But you shouldn't be discouraged. You should be like, that's never—I can't possibly—God probably hates me. No, no, no. God just wants you to acknowledge it. Apologize to him. Commit that you're going to go apologize to the people you should. Commit that you want to grow in this. And under his leadership and direction. And enjoy the fact that he comes to you as his dearly beloved child. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to receive communion, I pray that you would— be with us, that you would help us, that in something as difficult as this, we live, uh, to quote the book of Isaiah, I remember the angel coming to Isaiah and him saying, woe to me, God's probably going to kill me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Of all the sins that were happening in Israel, that's the one he knew he was going to get killed for. And your response to that confession was to cleanse him and to use him to speak for you. And I pray right now as we come to this this ordinance of communion, as we give our hearts to you in this, as we repent and believe the Christ who died for us, that you would, you would speak to us that same promise that any human being willing to confess that they're a person of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips, that they have been a person whose throat is an open grave, and that they recognize now that the power in life and death is in their tongue, that you would embrace them with open arms and you would show them and teach us. I pray that you'd empower us to speak well, to apologize well, to restrain ourselves well, to, to type well into screens, to desire not just to not be idolaters, but desire to, to desire to be imitators of you, to walk in the way of love and for our lives, to be a fragrant offering. Amen. The, uh,